Welcome again to week four of God's Odds, a study of book of Esther. We're going to be in chapter seven today. And I pray that you're blessed as we continue uh, this series to see some applications and truths that we can learn from an amazing story that goes against the odds. And that's why I have a question for you. How many of you know where you were and what you were doing late afternoon, early evening on June 17th of 1994? Like you could tell me right now, June 17th, 1994, where you were late afternoon, early evening. There might be a few random ones of you in here who got married on that day and that's your anniversary, so you know exactly where you were. But outside of that, how many of you know what you were doing and where you were? Good. I thought the odds would be really low that maybe no one knew. My guess is the odds will go up when I say two words. White Bronco. Like how many of you were sitting in your house watching the NBA finals or maybe doing something else and a friend called you on the phone because we didn't have cell phones like we do today and said, you got to turn on the TV, you got to see the news. OJ's white Bronco is driving down the highway with a phalanx of police cars surrounding him. They found him and they're following him. And then you tune in and you stay tuned in because you can hear the phone calls going on with his friend and the police. I got OJ, he's in the car. Like what transpired only days earlier, his, his wife and Ron Goldman being murdered seemed to be culminating in the capture of the person most believed guilty of the crime. And that incident was what gave boom to something we call court TV. I don't even know if it's in existence right now. I think it's faded away, but... Court TV became one of the most viewed cable channels of all time in the midst of OJ. Come on, admit it. The odds are pretty good. You watch something about it. And everyone remembers the famous scene of, of OJ being told by his attorneys to, to put on the glove and if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And maybe you watched how the trial played out. You... You were drawn in and waiting for, like everyone else, and especially everyone in L.A., the, the verdict to come down. And the odds are pretty good that it's 50-50. You were on one side or the other, very strong and very passionate about that verdict. Like there were parties and celebrations in the streets of L.A. that day. O.J. was acquitted. And then there were people around the world also crying out for justice to be done for two individuals who most people believed, and courts later said in civil court, that he was guilty of the crime. And perhaps that of all the most famous cases in American history lately, it reveals to us why so many people are drawn in to the, the big news stories of the cases of the day. Like, I didn't really care, but every once in a while I found it enticing to listen to the the details of Johnny Depp and his girlfriend, wife's case and everything that was about it. Like, it was messy. It's like, ooh, yeah, what's going to happen? Who's going to win? Is, is there something about that that draws you in? And then when the verdict comes down, you, you see the rich and famous, the powerful and the, the popular. And there's a whole lot of tension behind it because oftentimes justice doesn't seem like it's quite served, Right? Like, there are a lot of people who believed 
If it was them and not OJ, a person of not so much money, not so much popularity, no real fame, that if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, would have gotten nowhere. Or maybe I need to bring it down to your level. Like, why is it that the human heart is stirred, the American heart is stirred, when, when justice doesn't seemingly get served in your life on your level? Like, how many of you have been a victim of the injustice of someone else getting a position that you were far more qualified for, that you had been around the company for many more years than they had, but they got in because they knew somebody? Or how about the injustice that maybe you experienced from a bully? Like, and even the people in your friend's circle stood there and watched it and didn't do anything about it. Or how about that sport or that team? Like, you might be the person who didn't get the seat on the bench or part to be able to participate in that team because they had that name or knew that person. Like, life is filled with injustice, isn't it? And doesn't it break your heart when you see it? And doesn't it cause you to churn inside when, when you're the victim of injustice? And I think it's about more than the American ideal and belief, life, liberty, justice for all, right? It's also instilled in us from a Christian matter of faith. If you have Jesus' roots, you know what the Bible says, uh, uh, what God calls us to. And, and maybe here's why there's so much tension in our longing for justice. Remember the words of Micah 6, God calls us to it. What does the Lord require of you mortals to act justly? <laughs> like do what's right, seek what's right. Walk humbly, love mercy, like be people who are passionate about justice, what God is passionate about. And when you don't see it, it's frustrating. And that's the tension in front of us today. Like we've gotten to that point in the story where we've seen what's transpired. Esther gets elevated to a, a position that is against all odds for an orphaned Jewish girl to become the queen of the most powerful country. It's against the odds that a man by the name of Mordecai, a Jew, who happened to be sitting by the city gate, got any credit for saving the king's life, which he got last week. And yet, if you have been with us all three weeks, you know the story of what's transpired and going on. There is a man lurking behind the scenes by the name of Haman, who wants to, to take care of a thousand-year vendetta that he has against the Jewish people. And he begins, wants to begin with Mordecai, and he wants to eradicate in other words, genocide, an entire race. He wants to wipe out the Jews, every last one from the face of planet Earth. And if you've been following along, there's got to be a part of your heart that's been stirred to say, how can someone get away with that? Will they get away with that? I know times when people have gotten away with that. And if you've ever wrestled with that, that that Christian thing inside of your heart to act justly that's stirred when, when justice doesn't seemingly get done. I want you to see this story, and I know it's just a story of Esther, and there's a, a truth that I want to, to, to be able to answer, the tension that's real when it comes to justice. Now, here's the tension. When it comes to justice being done, 
the odds of it being done depend on one thing more than any other thing the truth. The truth. Like the truth is, is not something that is, as Pilate said, what is truth? No, the truth is concrete. The truth is real. But the truth has to come out. Like our school year is about to start and Mr. Donnell and all the teachers are going to start hearing the cases of he said, he said, she said, she said, that took place on the playground. And you know what there were on the playground? A whole bunch of witnesses, but no one will probably speak up or speak into it at times because they're concerned about what will happen to them. And so for justice to be done in that case, who stuck their foot out first? Who called who what? Someone has to do what? Speak up. Speak the truth. And it sometimes can be costly. We saw that in week two. Esther understood that. But the odds of justice being done depend on the truth. And right now we're left hanging in the middle of the story because we know what Haman has proposed to do and we haven't seen any resolution. And maybe you're wondering why Esther hasn't spoken up yet, right? Like the king offered her anything up to half the kingdom. Remember his words in chapter 5? He said, I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And Esther goes, if the king regards me with favor and it pleases the king to grant my petition, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I'll answer the king's question. She did that twice. Like delay and delay. Like Esther, the king let you into his courtroom. The king did not chop your head off. The king instead said, I'll give you anything and everything up to half the kingdom for your bravery. Like speak the truth, shout it out. Like here's your opportunity. But she says, instead, let me throw a party. In the meantime, Mordecai's been honored. And what are the odds that it was Haman who had to put the nice robe and the nice clothes on him? Like that just must have churned his heart. Like to see the enemy get blessed. And it was right after that that Haman went home furious. And his family says this about the odds of him getting the best of Mordecai. This is where we left off last week. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. His family saw it. They didn't believe in God, but they knew God's odds. <laughs> they understood there's a powerful force at work that is creating something that you can't stop. Even his family acknowledged it. And in the midst of that conversation, as they're sharing those words with him, as Haman's heart is probably racing and hearing that, that he, the odds have changed and they're no longer in his favor, the king's eunuchs come and sweep him away to the banquet Esther has prepared. This three-person banquet. Esther, the king, and Haman. Now, originally, Haman thought this was going to be the greatest thing ever because he was in the king's he had the king in his back pocket. And this was hopefully his chance to get the king's lady to be on his side as well. But do you remember what he didn't know about Esther? Do you know or remember what no one knew about Esther at this point? She was a Jew. Like Mordecai had told her, don't tell anybody. If you tell anybody, it might mean your doom. Mordecai later had said, you need to do something. You need to speak up. Uh, Esther lay out a plan. None of us know what it was. Her plan was throw a party. 
resist the king's request the first time, see what plays out, and, and Haman's on his way to that banquet. Without knowing that the person throwing it was one of the people that he wanted to kill. Now, before we get to what happens, remember, God's odds are always in our favor. But worldly odds, the odds of justice being done, depend on truth. So would justice be done in this case? Or, like many people we have seen 2,500 years later, would, would money, power, prestige, popularity, connections... cause Haman to, to get away with it. Weasel his way out of it. Find a loophole in the process. Buy off his friends. Kiss up to the queen. I just wonder what was going on in Haman's heart as he, his family says the odds are against you. He was pretty conniving. He was devious. He was, I'm not going to use the word for him, but he was just a bad guy. I'm guessing on the way to see the king and the queen, he was thinking about the things he was going to say, how he was going to leverage his position, how he was going to use this opportunity to get out of what he had done. To not allow justice to be done to him, but rather carry out his wicked plan. And chapter 7 gives us the answer to what happens to the odds when the truth comes out. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet and they were drinking wine on the second day, as they were doing that, the king asked again, Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther, I've asked and asked and asked and asked, what is it that I can do for you? Up to half the kingdom that I can give you. What is the one thing that you might want? Do you want power? Do you want money? Do you want land? I'll give you up to half of what I have, half of everything that, that is mine. You, you, you say it, it is yours. I will do it. And Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. And I want to stop there for just a second as she's saying these words and, and think that you are the king. You're Xerxes. Like this is your lady, the hand-chosen number one woman in your, in your house, your harem. Like, no one would mess with the king, and no one would touch the king's main lady. Like, that was instant death. So when I'm, imagine when Esther says these words, Look, King, I, your majesty, grant me my life. He's like, no one's going to touch you. Like, what are you asking for? Like, you could ask for half of my wealth, and all you want is to keep breathing tomorrow to wake up to see another sunrise? Like, don't be foolish. Here's your opportunity. But she says, Why? This is her petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For the first time in all of the book, Esther has revealed her identity. For the first time in the book, she has connected herself to Mordecai and to everyone that was on Haman's heinous list of genocide. Spare my life and spare my people. That's what I want. I want you to step in and I want you to act. And I want you to spare the lives of the people that I call my own, my family tree. 
In fact, she goes on to describe that further. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Remember, Haman said, hey, king, if you sign this edict, if you sign off on this uh, act of genocide against these people who, who aren't really good people, I'll give you some money. Like Haman was going to pay the king to be able to carry out this act. In other words, literally, they had been sold. They had been paid for to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Esther said, I... I would have kept quiet if it was just being sold as slaves, which is already kind of what the Jews had been for many years after they were taken off into captivity, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. That doesn't rise to the level of horrific actions. I I wouldn't have even disturbed you, king, if that was the case. And so the king asked, who is he? Where is he? The man who was there to do such a thing. Like the king calls for the truth so that justice can be done. Like the odds of justice happening rely on the truth, depend on the truth. Xerxes knew he needed the truth. In order to carry out her request, in order to fulfill his promise, he needed her to point the finger in the direction of the guilty. Which she does. Esther said an adversary and an enemy. Notice she doesn't identify him as his buddy, his friend, the highest ranking noble. She literally points the finger in his direction and says, King, this is your enemy and this is an adversary. It's Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Like this party that was an audience of one soon became a disaster for Haman. In that moment, in that second, he knew that he was doomed. Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. The king leaves for a second, maybe to catch his breath, maybe to think about how he was going to execute him. But Haman knew he was in trouble. Haman knew there was very little chance that he would get out of it. Maybe, just maybe, he could pull one more string. He could try and and fool one more person. He could talk to one last person who maybe could convince the king otherwise. In other words, he's going to keep trying and trying and trying and trying for justice to be avoided, for injustice to still go forward. And in the process, he makes things worse. Just as the king returned from the palace garden, he saw Haman falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Like, you've already threatened to kill Esther's family. You want to do eradicate her family tree. And probably now, while accident, he slips and falls, and he's literally laying on the king's lady. Like, there is no way out, no parachute left, no one who's going to help you. Justice is going to get served and served quickly which is what we see. In that moment, what does the king do next? We'll look at the next few verses. The king exclaimed, will you even molest the queen while she's still in my house? As soon as that word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Like it's over. This is how Xerxes worked. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He sent it up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. And so the king said, impale him on it. And so they impaled Haman on the pole. He'd set up for Mordecai. Justice got served. Quickly. In fact, ironically, the way justice was carried out was the very instrument of death that Mordecai had built to mock and and ridicule the whole Jewish tree, starting with Mordecai, became the place of his death, the instrument that took his life. 
Like if you want to check the boxes of justice, check, 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 and check. The mocked, the ridiculed were elevated. The rich, the wealthy who bribed and bought their way into the pockets of the king are now exposed for the crimes, the desire to kill innocent people. Which leads to the answer that, that I need you to hear. I think it's the application we find in this story. Like none of us are probably going to have Esther moments where we rise to that crazy of an odds position where we stand like before a king and have the lives of millions in our hand, literally the Jewish nation. But what we can learn from it, what we can see in that moment, while this story is filled with God's odds, I want you to remember this about the odds for justice being done. The odds for justice increase. They go up when the truth comes out. Like if the truth doesn't come out, justice is not going to prevail, will not be done. Justice will simply be in the eye of the beholder. I'm preaching this sermon and there was a couple who were guests and visitors in here and one of them was a prosecuting attorney. I'm like, oh boy, what bad things did I say about attorneys? And he goes, like a lot of times, no one's happy because neither thinks justice was done. Like it's in the eye of the beholder. Like the defense attorney's job isn't necessary to, to speak all of the truth. He's just seeking to give you enough truths or a different path or a distraction to get his client off. Like defense attorney's job, they're being paid to mitigate the damages or to get you no jail time. They're not really concerned about justice. They're worried about your freedom or not making you pay as much as you would have to. Sometimes, sadly, those who are prosecuting and judges miss things that are the truth, some of the evidence, not always purposefully, maybe sometimes, I don't know, but it doesn't allow for justice to be carried out because the truth doesn't come out. And take it down to the, the smallest level, the micro level of your life, for justice to be done in situations where bullying happens, where people get jobs, where wrongs are done, where hurts are caused, for there to be justice, there needs to be truth. The odds increase when the truth comes out. Esther proves that. It's so a truth I want you to take away from the, this story. The odds for justice increase when the truth comes out. And there are two things that I want you to remember about that reality. When it comes to justice increasing and the odds of it happening, relying on the truth, remember in that you and I bear a responsibility. Like so many times we want God to make justice happen. We want the principal to make justice happen. We want the boss to do the right thing and not be convinced by that person who gets their select chosen family, relative, or friend into the job that, that you deserve. We want justice to be done, but we don't want to do anything to make it happen. We think it should be someone else's responsibility, but that's not biblical. That's not true. Esther reinforces and reminds us of that. Justice is your responsibility because you are the ones who can speak the truth and speak out. Esther did that. It took some prodding, it took some encouraging. Mordecai to push her and push her and push her. I'm guessing she wrestled with it and struggled with it because that's the tension of telling the truth, right? It's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging, but she did it. 
So when it comes to the odds increasing of justice happening, being dependent upon the truth coming out, remember your responsibility in these speakers of the truth and seekers of justice. I'm not making that up. That's biblical. Look at these words. Learn to do right, the book of Isaiah says. Defend the oppressed. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Don't hope that it happens. But when injustice is being done, when people are oppressed, defend them. That requires verbal action. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Take on the action. Step into it. Plead the case of the widow. Speak for someone who can't speak for themselves. The downtrodden, those who aren't in those positions. You have a responsibility, God says to his people. And the odds for justice will go up when the truth comes out. Be the instrument of truth. Speak it in love, but, but speak it boldly. If you remember the other passage that was on that screen, the righteous rejoice when justice happens and the wicked and the evildoers become afraid. And that was Haman. And you know why the righteous rejoice when justice happens? Even if it's punishment like that? Because God loves justice. So remember your responsibility. Like all the teachers in here are going, Amen, Pastor Tim, preach on. School starting this week. <laughs> we love classrooms where we get the truth. Because we can do what God wants us to do. Speak the truth in love. But you know what sometimes happens this side of heaven? Injustice. Like I know people who have gone to court who have spoken the truth. I didn't do it. And only after they've died in jail have they found out and their families heard that there was a travesty. It wasn't them. DNA proved otherwise. And there are times when bullying and, and jobs don't go your way and never will and injustice is done and nothing is done about it. Like, how do you deal with that? Like, if that's been you, if you've faced injustice, if, if you've experienced that, if you're a person of a race or a group of people who has been treated poorly and no one has spoken up, if you're in a circle where, where that's happened to you at work or relationships, like, injustice never happened, this gets really hard, right? Pastor Tim, I did what you said. I did what God wanted. I, I sought justice. I spoke the truth and I still got this. But I want you to remember this about the odds increasing for justice to be done when the truth comes out. One day, if that's you, one day the truth will come out. And I guarantee you 100% odds that justice will be done. And if you're the one sitting in the seat where you've done something that's wrong and you've gotten away with it, remember this. And if you're sitting in the seat where wrong's been done to you and you're hurting and you're broken and you're questioning God, remember this truth. Remember God's sovereignty, that the plans in a person's heart are many, but the Lord's purpose prevails. Truth number two, remember your responsibility. Carry it out. Speak the truth because it will bring about justice. The odds increase, but ultimately, 100% sure justice will be done because God is sovereign. Remember God's sovereignty. Remember that in week one we talked about it, God's rule and reign. He's in charge of all things. He's over all things. One day he will come back, stand on earth, and justice will be done. I promise you, I guarantee you, because God promises and he guarantees it. 
Your heart might break, but understand God will carry this out. Remember his sovereignty. When, when injustice is experienced and done and you don't see a solution, God will work it out. God will have the final say. While in Esther it worked out perfectly, at the end of time it will work out perfectly. Look at these verses. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. That's God. He will do it. And in those moments when you're struggling with injustice, when you've been wrong, when your heart is hurting, when you feel like no one cares, God doesn't care, remember God will one day pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And remember the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Like there are spiritual blessings for those who wait for him because God is just. And the odds for justice increase when the truth comes out. And one day, the last day, all truth will come out and be revealed. And justice will be done. God says so. And that's the big takeaway from this story, but I, I need to leave you with one last person. Like I asked you where you were on June 17th, 1994, and none of you knew. Well, none of you were here, but how many of you have heard of a day called Good Friday? Like the odds are pretty good. And it's kind of ironic when you think about God being a God of justice. That what one you and I, heaven, was injustice. Like even the people next to him, one of them, understood, we're here for the crimes we've committed, but he's done nothing wrong. And yet you know that Jesus endured that injustice because he understood the justice of God. He understood that justice had to be done. And the only way ultimate justice for you and for me could be done was for someone to pay for our sins. Heinous, wicked criminals against God. And he wasn't impaled on a tree, but he was nailed to one. So that God's justice could be met, that your sins could be paid for, so that you and I could have life. Blessed are those who wait for him. Jesus, in fact, the Apostle Peter said, understood this. In the middle of the injustice, what did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who's just. And that's what Esther did. It's what compelled her to speak because she knew it was her responsibility and the only way that justice could be done was the truth to come out. Remember your responsibility. And if you're someone suffering from injustice, I pray that you can hold on to that picture of a God who brought his justice down on his son, who promises in his sovereignty that one day he'll work it out. Justice will be done. Wait for him. Esther knew that. And I pray that we can learn that in our life and apply it to be speakers of the truth, but also trusters in God's sovereignty. Let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, like you are good and you are sovereign. And this side of heaven, we know that the only way for, for justice to happen is for the truth to come out. So help us be people who love what you love, people who seek justice, love mercy, defend the oppressed, speak up for that. Give us courage, Lord, to do it. It's hard. I pray that you, you allow us to, to have hearts that, that love what you love 
and do what you call us to do. Esther knew it was her responsibility. She spoke up. She knew the odds would increase if she did for justice to happen. And they did, Lord. You carried it out against all odds. In this case, Haman got what he deserved for his sin. And thankfully, Lord, we know that we won't get what we deserve for your sin. As a just God, you punished your son so that we might have eternity with you. And Lord, it's that one day that sometimes we have to look forward to and wait for, for justice to happen, because this side of heaven, it won't perfectly carry out. So Lord, give us hearts that trust your sovereignty, know you're at work, and commit our lives to your care.